following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. If you would, open up your Bibles uh, or electronic devices that have a Bible. We are in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to close out 2 Peter today. Um, the f- we'll be in verse 12 and then go all the way to 21. So 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to 21. I preach out of the ESV version of the Bible, so if um, you're kind of curious on uh, wording, it's going to be a little different between ESV and uh, New Living Translation is what a lot of other people read out of, and then the Pew Bibles are actually NIV. So if you see some um, uh, little differences in there, that's the reason why. Um, 2 Peter is a, a... phenomenal passage of scripture. And let's just back up a second and let's go uh, to the first couple of verses to understand where we have been and kind of where we're going. Peter's already given a greeting, a formal greeting in the New Testament letters. The authors do this. Um, He says, grace and peace uh, to you. Same prayer for today. And then he confirms the believer's salvation or regards to the call of salvation. God has called us Uh, to follow him through faith in Christ. And so we need to have a relationship with God through faith in Christ. If you don't have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, there's a little blue bookmark in front of um, you in the pew, and you can go ahead and read through that. It's just a simple question. Um, Has anybody ever taken a Bible and shown you how you could know for sure that you're going um, to heaven, or I would say, to have a relationship with God? And that comes through faith in Christ. And then he talks about supplementing the faith. If you look in this passage of Scripture, you'll see verse 3 through 11. We talked about that last week of what it looks like for us to live daily honoring the Lord with everything that we think, say, and do. Peter's writing to a persecuted church. As he writes to a persecuted church, everything that's transpiring in life, Peter is going to push back and he's going to say, I want you to remember the truths of God's word. Are you having hardships? Are you having problems? Remember the truths of God's word. Are you going through a season of distress? Remember the truths of God's word. Are you having marriage problems? Remember the truths of God's word. Are you having health issues? Remember the truths that are in God's Word. Are you having problems with your kids? None of us ever do that, right? Remember the truths of God's Word. So let's look at verse 12, and let's just start there. He says, therefore, and if you uh, write in your Bibles, which you can, I remember when I was little, my dad said, you can never write in your Bible. Now I realize why he told me I couldn't write in my Bible is because when we were teenagers, we used to sit in the back and write in the hymnals and the Bibles and draw pictures in them. He was saying you can't write in your Bible that way, okay? So don't draw pictures in the church Bibles, but you can underline them and study them. And so therefore is, is there for the reason that we just said, knowing salvation, but also the supplements of the salvation. Brothers, and you can put ancestors in there because we want to include the whole congregation. I want you, Peter says, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, one that has seen Jesus, to be all the more diligent. To be all the more diligent, this is verse 10, I'm just getting up to verse 12, to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you the inheritance of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these simple truths. I'm going to tell you these things over and over and over and over and over again. Like a parent who berates their children. I'm going to tell you a thousand times until you remember, right? Right? 
He says over and over again, I'm going to remind you of these truths. Therefore, I intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, that you would establish them. Now, that's going to be a key word there for us in the truth that you have. Verse 13, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body, this tent maybe your passage says, to stir you up, to spur you on. This is going to hurt a little bit, but it's going to be encouraging as a way of reminder. 14, since I know that the putting off of the body, that's when we die, will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. We don't know how Jesus made that clear to Peter, but he did. 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So over and over and over and over again, Peter says, I want you to be encouraged. And how are you going to be encouraged as a believer in Jesus Christ? Number one, that you would remember God's established word, that you remember this word that God has given to us. Now, the word is twofold. There is the written word of God, that is the Bible, and there is the living word of God, that is Christ. You need to make that distinction when you study scripture. Are we talking about the living word, which is Jesus Christ, or are we talking about the written word, that is the Bible? And what Peter says here is he's essentially talking about both. Now, he knows that his days are going to be numbered. In church tradition, it is believed that Peter was crucified upside down. When they went to crucify him, they said, Peter, we are going to crucify you. He said, you cannot crucify me like the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Crucify me upside down because I renounced Jesus Christ at his crucifixion. It is also believed in church um, tradition that Peter's wife was um, cut with knives and persecuted as well. He was persecuted because of his faith and preaching Jesus Christ, and he wanted the church to remember. So if you're studying God's word this morning and you are okay with it, you can circle that word established that you see in the text. That means strengthened or firm. It is the same passage that 1 Thessalonians 3 and 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about. And to be strengthened and firm in God's word is twofold. Number one, it means that we know the word of God the living word of God, that Christ is our Messiah. We have a head knowledge of who he is, and we've accepted that head knowledge into our heart. We trust in faith that his blood that was on the cross, that was shed on the cross, is for our sin. But we also know, number two, to be strengthened and firm, we supplement the faith. That's verse five. And so Peter says over and over again, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to remind you of this verse 12. I'm going to refresh your memory of this verse 13. I'm going to tell you again so that you're able to remember verse 15. He's going to say it again in chapter three, verse one. Why? Because Peter knows that you're like him and that you're going to forget. Amen. Peter knows that you're like him and you're going to forget the truths that God has given to us. So he's pointing back to scripture and he is saying this one simple summary of these specific passages. He's saying, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to be established in God's word. It is not a license for you to live immorally. Paul says, should I go on sinning because I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior? By no means. Should I sin so that God's grace would be even greater? By no means. Believers do this all the time. It is as if we've gotten a driver's license to sin. And Peter says, I don't want you to see that. I want it, though, God's word, the Bible, and the living word, Jesus. I want you to see this as a call for a constant recalling of the truths of God's word that are to be fixed on your heart. They are to be impressed on your heart. You are to know them so well that you would recall them like that. 
He says, I want you to understand that you need to have a mind like Jesus in order to be strengthened in any season of life. Times are tough. What does God's word say? Persecution is prevalent. What does God's word say? False teachers are prevailing. What does God's word say? Presidential candidates go up for a debate. What does God's word say? It is amazing to me that we have a society have forgotten what God's word says. We have to go back to this truth. If we are not in God's word, we have nothing to combat a sin-soaked society. And so Peter's prayer is the same prayer that Jesus' prayer for him in Luke chapter 22. He says, I have prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith may not fail, that you may be what? Strengthened, established, firm, that you may be able to do that and you may be able to strengthen your brothers. Well, my question on the table is, how long do I have to be in God's Word? How long do I have to be in God's Word? I mean, what does that look like for us? And Peter reminds us here in verse 13, guess what? As long as you live, how long do I have to be faithful to my wife? As long as you both shall live. How long do I have to love my kids? As long as you live. Now notice here in verse 13 and 14, he says, remind, which is like a phrase, like wake up or arouse. Peter's emphasis is that this life is temporary, and as we live a temporary life, we are to have an eternal perspective. And Peter says that while we're here, we remember what God's word says as we are in this body, as long as we live. Now, Paul uses the word tent, and other translations use this as well. 2 Corinthians talks about it a little bit. And essentially what is transpiring is here is it would have given you the idea of a nomad who packed up their tents in order to move to a new location. I think about the old movie Dances with Wolves, right? They packed up their tents and they moved. And they put aside their other things in places where they could transport them from one spot to the next. What Peter's saying is the same thing Paul is saying. He is saying that as human beings, we one day will put aside our physical bodies and move into eternity, and the Bible contains moving directions. The Bible gives us everything that we need in order to know how to go from this world to the next. Isn't that great? That God's Word has given you every truth that you need in order how you take this life and go into eternity. Believers move into this earth to the next. Peter says, with glorious bodies, thank God, amen, anyone? Right? All of the situations and circumstances that you found yourselves in with all of this body will be made new, and we will be strengthened and firm, ready when God comes. But we have to be strengthened and firm by his word. The Bible constantly tells us, the more that we study it, that this world is not our home. I'm just simply passing through. And the more time I spend in God's word, the more I'm encouraged that Jesus is coming back again soon. Every New Testament letter points to that which will to come, and that is God's word to us. Peter says, abide in this word. John tells us in 2 John chapter 2, he says, the truth that abides in us will be with us forever. Now, so I'm supposed to be in it as long as I'm alive. Okay. How am I supposed to have an attitude towards it? I'm supposed to have a positive effort with everything that is implemented. Peter deliberately repeats himself here for emphasis in verse 15. He's worked hard to complete these letters. First Peter was a tough letter. Second Peter is a tough letter to the church. And he wants people to be sure that God wouldn't forget his promises in Christ, but also in his word, Old Testament and New Testament. And Peter's life work here is founded on the gospel and its teachings, and he is praying that they would not be forgotten. 
He is praying so desperately that the people do not forget what he said, do not forget what Jesus said, do not forget what the prophets said, do not forget what the Old Testament law says. See, we as believers carry on the biblical message. We as believers look at God's word and we make every effort to not only get into God's word, but make sure that we implement it accordingly. Think about it like this. The people that you come in contact with who don't know Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, you are a walking Bible for them. If they were to say, yes, I know what God looks like, what God talks like, what God walks like by your life, could they? Could they really see Jesus and his words to us, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, manifested for them in their everyday life? Does it show up on your face? Are you happy about the salvation that you have received in Jesus? Or are you walking around miserable? See, Peter tells us, he says, listen, we are the walking text. We have taken the Old Testament truths and the New Testament truths and we've implemented them accordingly. We as believers carry on the biblical message. We are the encouragement for a world who desperately needs it. And so, how can we remember God's word as long as we're alive, make every effort to do so, and to be firmly established in whatever his world throws, uh, this world throws at us? What does that look like for us? In other words, what does it look for me practically to be in God's word, to establish God's word on my heart. I'm glad you asked. I'll give you four considerations. Ready? This is the most practical application I've ever given you as a pastor. Here we go. Number one, you need to construct a plan. You need to, as a believer, read God's word in its entirety every year of your life. I used to get up here and I used to just give this suggestion. I'm absolutely sold on it. If you only lived one more year, you would have read God's word one whole time. If you live five more years, you'll have read God's word five times. If you live another 20 years, you will have read God's word 20 times. If you live another 50 years, oh man, I can't even imagine. You'll have read God's word 50 times from cover to cover. You need to construct a plan. Great uh, application is the Read Scripture app. There are more than enough Bible reading plans to go around. Pick one. Read the Bible in a year. It's not that hard. Number two, I would say you need to journal through the Bible. I've journaled through three Bibles so far in my life, like from cover to cover. I can't tell you what it does to sit down and to just write out my questions, my comments, my concerns. These journaling Bibles, man, you think to themselves, well, they're kind of expensive. They're like 25, 30 bucks. Heaven forbid we make an investment on our spiritual life. Number three, people look at me all the time and they say, Pastor Jordan, I just don't like to read. Okay, God has written you a letter. He has given you a letter. He has given you a book. And if somebody who you loved and cared about died and they gave you a book and they said, here's all the instructions that you need to know, would you look at them and say, you know what? I just didn't like to read a whole lot. No, you would go and you would pour through that letter. You would underline it. You would circle things. You would highlight things. It would be the most important thing for you. It would be the one thing you wake up in the morning and you pour over. It would be the last thing that you pour over before you go to bed. You'd open it constantly. You would be in it all the time. And what the Bible has done for us is just that. God's given you a word. And so, if you don't like to read, ready for this? You live in the greatest generation of all time. I know some of you older people, you're like, no, you're not the greatest generation. I know, I understand, we're not. I'm just making a point. You have audio Bibles. You have video Bibles. You have all the resources and tools that you need in order to accomplish this task. Don't be passive about it. 
Access it. There's so many applications that will get a great audio Bible. Here's what you can do. Men, I'm talking to you, okay, because I know it's hard for you to read. You get up in the morning. You put in your little ear pods or headphones or whatever it is that you have. You get an audio Bible. You open up the actual Bible, and you go like this. And you read God's Word as you hear God's Word. And you tell me in 30 days that your life hasn't changed immensely. You tell me that you have not changed in 30 days. You tell me that God hasn't moved in your life. He hasn't done something in your life. And some of you will look at me and you'll say, but Jordan, my life's gotten harder in the past month. Well, good. Because maybe God's working to get rid of the world and put in the Word. Amen? Okay, so live it out. Fourth thing. Here's the consideration. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. God did not make this difficult in His Word. There are sometimes we read God's Word and we think to ourselves, I wonder what that means. And God looks at us and He says exactly what I said. Four considerations right there on how we impress or establish or are strengthened and firm in God's wonderful Word. When? When do I do this? First thing in the morning, last thing before going to bed. When do I pray? Over every meal, first thing in the morning I pray, last thing I do before I go to bed is pray. Make God's Word a priority. It's not about time. It's about priorities. It's not about time. You have the time. You just don't have the priorities. Billy Graham once said, he said, we need to encourage believers to feed on God's Word. It is nourishment for your soul. You will feed on anything else but God's Word and you will find yourself frustrated. But when you feast on God's Word, you will find yourself full. Peter continues. He says in verse 16, he says, For we did not follow clearly devised myths, Oh, we didn't follow those things when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is God speaking. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Verse 18. We ourselves, he's speaking of the apostles here, we have heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on this holy mountain. So what Peter's saying is, if you want to continue to be encouraged here, he's saying you have to trust that God has validated his word in a couple of ways. That God has validated his word in a couple ways. Believers remember God's word, we implement it accordingly, and then we start to see that our faith doesn't rest on these clearly devised myths. So the people in Peter's time, they would look at it and they would say, these Christians, right? Negative context. They're making up a bunch of stories. They want you to believe a bunch of things. I mean, this Jesus guy, he walked on water. He sounds like the greatest magician that ever walked the earth, right? He's like, well, hold on a second. This wasn't just a myth. This isn't just something that we made up. Now, the biggest complaint that the people had in that time period was that the Christians believed that Jesus was coming back again when? Soon. They didn't give a date. This Jesus that you talk about, he's coming back again soon. Where is it? Produce this Christ who has supposedly risen from the dead. And what the believers did is they pushed back and they said, hold on a second. Our faith is not about historical facts or eyewitnessing. Uh, it's not about these myths. It's about historical facts. It's about eyewitness accounts that we saw when the majesty of God was made known to us, embodied in Jesus Christ, the Son. Peter demonstrates this. He is going to unpack his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration for clarification of where that's at. That's Mark chapter 9. 
He and three others and others were eyewitnesses, three total, excuse me, were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. Now, the interesting word is that word majesty. In the word majesty, we see that God's glory in Christ was a glimpse of not only the fact that Jesus was God, but it was a glimpse of the glory that would come too as well. So God is essentially showing all of these men, this is exactly my son. You can trust him. You can trust what he says. But also, this is what's going to come in the future. So why do we trust that? Why do we trust these sources? Or what do we trust to validate God's word? Good question. Number one, we trust these eyewitness accounts. Now, we're making a claim here for the Bible. The Greek word majesty, if you want to circle that, is used of Christ's divine greatness. In Luke chapter uh, 9, what happened was Jesus walked around and he did miracles. And he would go ahead and he would um, you know, make the blind see and he would make the people who couldn't walk, walk. And as he's doing these things and as he is participating in what God has called him and commanded him to do, the people in verse 43 said, we were astonished at the majesty of God. We were amazed at the miracles that Jesus was doing. Peter says they were in that same boat at the Mount of Transfiguration when they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. As a matter of fact, this account is dictated for us in Matthew chapter 17. Peter says his face, speaking of Jesus, shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And Peter says we were all gathered there and we saw this majesty made known to us, this majestic glory of God demonstrated to us. And as they saw these things unpack, what he says is this is exactly what's going to happen when he comes back again soon. You'll see it for yourself. We saw it, then you'll see it, right? We saw the Cubs win the World Series, you'll see it maybe in your lifetime, right? So he says here, I want you to, have, to understand this eyewitness experience trumps expert opinions. See, Jesus, when he is talking to the woman at Samaria, she looks at it, she knows what it's like to see God in his majesty because she pens the words where she says, come see a man who told me everything that I did. Come see the man who I saw his majesty made known. You have that if you have a testimony about coming to Jesus Christ through faith. Come see this guy who has told me everything that I've ever done and have an opportunity to see him made manifest in my life. I'm not the same person I used to be. Peter says, we have seen the word. John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. This is the living word, right? This is Jesus in his full glory. One of the greatest testimonies of Christ's divinity lies in the testimony of the saints. Now, this is interesting, right? We would think to ourselves, okay, prove it, right? What does that look like? Well, 12 disciples, okay? One betrays. His name is, anyone? Judas, okay? Glad we all went to Sunday school. We're good there. So Judas betrays him. Judas dies a painful, horrible death. It says he went and he hung himself, right? John, Jesus loved John. He dies of old age. Praise the Lord, right? So he dies at old age. What happened to the rest? Well, here's what happened to the rest. 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. I already gave you the two. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, and they never once denied it. It goes on to say that everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison, and yet did not renounce the glory, the majesty of God. No man dies for a lie. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. 
Now, I know most of us weren't alive in 1972. Some of you guys were. But Watergate had 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. And you see 12 disciples of Jesus Christ, they are beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison for the gospel. That we saw the majesty of God. You're telling me, this is Chuck Colson speaking, that 12 apostles couldn't keep alive for 40 years? As a matter of fact, church history recalls and it tells us that these men had their wives beaten and tortured. And they looked at the people who were beating their wives and their kids and their family and they said, Godspeed, I'll see you in a little bit. It's all going to be worth it. We can believe the eyewitness accounts. That should encourage you. These men have given testimony. They've laid down their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we would think it's just them. But this has transpired from generation to generation to generation to generation. We can trust the eyewitness accounts that God's word is true. Now, the other thing that we know is God's word affirms this. God's very word, as if you needed it, he still gives it. During the transfiguration, this cloud appears, and we see all these guys essentially... um, Become enveloped by this, and God's verse comes. Now, I love what Peter says. You can underline this in your Bibles. By his majestic glory. Isn't that amazing? The glory of God, the majestic glory. He singles out Jesus from Moses and Elijah and the long-awaited Messiah who possessed divine authority. Now, majestic glory means the supreme and sublime glory of God. It is a name for God that's used in Exodus chapter 16 and Numbers 14. It means that God himself exalted Christ just like he did at his baptism. He gives verbal approval. Now, we would think he's just giving verbal approval to the disciples, but what's he giving verbal approval to? All of us. He knows it's going to go from generation to generation to generation. God's voice from heaven says, listen to him. And listening there in that context meant implementation. You didn't just listen to what somebody said, you implemented what somebody said, right? Here he says, I want you to implement God's word. I know some of you guys are hunters, right? And if I told you where the biggest bucks are, right? I told you exactly where they were located. It's hunting season. Would you go out there and find it? Of course you would. You would implement that knowledge. It's exactly what Peter's saying is we have all the keys that we need in order to pursue a life of godliness. And he says, God affirms this. Listen to the fulfillment of the law and the countless prophecies in the Old Testament. The testimonies prove true, but God's voice validates. So Peter gives us assurance to the believers to focus on this word. He said it is reliable in eyewitness accounts and it's affirmed by God himself. And he assures us that we who have believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will see the glory of God come. We'll see it for ourselves. John Piper, I think, uh, sums it up really well. He says, if you don't see the greatness of God in your everyday life, if you don't see the greatness of God in your everyday life, then all things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with a streetlight. If you've ever felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. If you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God that's displayed here in the text, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, you'll fall in love with the world in the shadows of a short-lived pleasure. God says, no, I want you to fall in love with me. I want you to behold the majesty of Jesus Christ. He walked among you. He talked among you. He died for you. I want you as the saints to be validated by the word of God. What a high call and charge to be in his word daily. What a high call for us. Now he continues. We got to finish up the passage. Let's look at verse 19. 
He says, and we, and, connecting the other thing, we, believers, have something more that is sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to. It is like a lamp that is shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's interpretation. No, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's the best part of preaching and teaching God's Word. You ready for this? You know all these things. Now you have responsibility. Isn't it fun to be an adult? Man, they give you a driver's license and now you have to obey the law. Isn't that amazing that we get the opportunity to do that? God says you have responsibility as a believer. Verse 19 has already stated God's voice on the mountainside made the Old Testament prophet words even more fully confirmed. The transfiguration fulfilled their words, but now Peter and others had responsibility. So what is our responsibility? Number one, he says you must pay attention. You must pay attention. Peter says to get meaning from God's word, you have to pay attention to God's word. You must use the Bible like a light to see the validity and authority that God's word says. Light eliminates darkness. And he's speaking here mostly about false teachers. When people come and they say, I have a new revelation. I have something new. Pastors do this all the time. Preachers do this all the time. I hear from them all the time. They put little quotes together and they put them on their social media platforms. And we think to ourselves, that's so genius and brilliant. That's ridiculous and absurd. Because it is not God's truth. It is something that you created. And if we paid attention to the Bible, we would have the opportunity to see the false teachers come through. We will always live in darkness if we fail to take action and turn the lights on. How do we turn the lights on? You get in God's word. When do I get in God's word? In the morning, as often as I can and before I go to bed. What do I read? God's word cover to cover. It doesn't make sense to me. If you read it every, every day for 10 years, it will start to make sense to you. Okay? Because why? Because Peter understands that we like sheep have gone astray and we need to be reminded when? Over and over and over and over again. So we pay attention in implementation. We take lamps shining, which is from Psalm 119, God's word, into a dark place, which is a world darkened by sin. And through evangelism and edification, it all leads up to the day of the Lord, which is Christ's return. That's Romans 13. When lamps are no longer needed. We know that the new heaven and the new earth that is given to us in regards to revelation, there is no sun. We don't need a sun anymore because God is the sun and he has given us light and he will be the light for us to follow. He is our morning star, the light bearer here. And at the end, he will give full illumination to those who had the truth in their hearts or accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, until Christ returns, Peter is saying, I want the scriptures to illuminate your hearts. If you feel like you're in darkness, maybe it's just because you haven't been in God's word. Amen. If you're in darkness and you feel in a season where you are suffering, maybe it's because you haven't opened up God's word. Peter says, if you feel like you are in the dark, then maybe we're not paying attention to what the word says. It's our GPS to the final destination. So the first thing is to pay attention, implement it accordingly. But number two is just as important. Oh, those are probably really good. <clears throat> oh, I missed the slide. It's okay. Number two, verse 20. Implement accordingly. Peter tells us that Scripture has to be interpreted correctly. Go back to verse 20. In the very end, 
He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody else's interpretation. It can't come from somebody else's interpretation. But he says, verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but God spoke through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter tells us that the Scriptures, now this is God's Word, the Bible, okay, Specifically, Old Testament prophecies didn't originate with any man or were interpreted by prophets themselves. They just delivered the message. It wasn't about them. It was about the message. Same is true with the New Testament authors. It wasn't about them. It was about the message. In this time period, in this day, false teachers are arising. And what is their goal? Their goal is to get people to go away from God. And as they go away from God, they want them to follow them so that they could be monetarily better off than they were before. Here in the New Testament text, we realize that no author of Scripture was worried about their own monetary gain, but more for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Genuine prophets didn't interpret God's message. They simply gave it. They spoke what was spoken to them. They recorded the God originated, spirit-motivated words. And so the question on the table is, go back, Jeff, it says, is the Bible reliable? I want to read something to you this morning as we're gathered here. Is the Bible reliable? Using the same criteria by which we judge other historical books, not only is the Bible reliable, it is more reliable than any other comparable writings. Reliability is a question of truthfulness and accurate copying. Writings that are historically and factually correct and that have been faithfully persevered over time would be considered reliable. Higher levels of historical verification and better confidence in transmission make it easier to determine whether an ancient work is worthy of trust. And so on the table today, we're asking, is the Bible worthy of our trust? As it is true with any historical work, not every single detail in the Bible can be directly confirmed. The Bible cannot be called unreliable, though, simply because it contains parts which cannot be confirmed or have not yet been confirmed. What's reasonable is to expect it is to be accurate where it is checked. This is the primary test of what we call reliability of Scripture. And here, the Bible has a stellar track record. Not only have many of its historical details been confirmed, but certain portions that were once in doubt have been verified later in archaeological efforts. For example... In archaeological finds in the 1920s confirmed the presence of cities much like Ur described in Genesis 11. Skeptics doubted that existed so early. Engravings in an Egyptian tomb depict the installation of a victory in a manner that exactly matches the biblical description in Genesis 41 of the ceremonies that involved Joseph. Clay tablets dating back to 2300 BC have been found in Syria, strongly supporting Old Testament stories, vocabulary, and geography. Skeptics doubted the existence of the Hittites, that's Genesis chapter 15, until a Hittite city was uncovered, complete with its records found in Turkey. There are dozens of other Old Testament facts supported by archaeological discoveries. More importantly, no facts presented in the Old and New Testaments have been shown false. This historical reliability is critical for our trust in other statements that are made in Scripture. Isn't it amazing that God uses history to uncover what we need to know about him slowly but surely? And here we're seeing this. Even the miraculous occurrences of Genesis have been evidentially biased that we still can appeal to today. Or basis, evidential basis, excuse me, not bias. We can appeal to today. For example, 
Ancient Babylonian records described a confusion of language in accordance with biblical account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. These same records describe a, one, a worldwide flood, an event present in literally hundreds of forms and cultures all over the world. These sites where Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, once sat, have been found. They display the evidence of a fiery and violent dis- destruction. Even the plagues of I- Egypt and the resulting exodus in Exodus 12, they have archaeological support. Isn't it amazing that this trend continues in the New Testament where the names of various cities, political officials, and events have been repeatedly confirmed by historians and archaeologists? Luke, who is the writer of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, has been described as a first-rate historian for his attention to detail and accurate reporting. So what we know to be true is both the Old Testament and the New Testament writing, the Bible is continuing generation after generation after generation to not only be true, but encouraging. Here we see that accurate copying is also an important factor in the Bible's reliability. You need this. New Testament writings were composed within a few decades, and the events they described far too early for legend or myth to overtake actual history. In fact, the basic framework of the gospel can be dated to a formal creed just a few years after the crucifixion of Jesus, according to Paul's description in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Historians have an access to a tremendous number of manuscripts proving the New Testament was reliable and quickly copied and distributed. This gives ample confidence that what we read today correctly represents the original writing. The Old Testament as well shows all evidence of being reliable. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered in the 1940s, they were 800 years older than any other available manuscripts. They compared earlier and later manuscripts and showed meticulous attempts of transmission, once again adding to our confidence that we have today representing the original text. People meticulously wrote down God's word so that you would understand it. And we become compliant with God's word. And the question on the table is, do we take God's word to the people that need it the most? One of the reasons that I could see that God would come back is that he has fed up or gotten fed up with the complacency of the local church. That he looks at the believers and he says, it is time for you to take the word as other people have taken the word before. A few more. Those factors all give objective reasons to consider the Bible it is reliable. At the same time, it is critically important to examine those factors in other texts we use to write our historical books. The Bible has more imperial support, a shorter time between original writing and surviving copies, and a greater number of source manuscripts than any other ancient work. Than any other ancient work. For example, there are 251 copies of the works of Julius Caesar, the earliest from 950 years after he wrote with no way to know how well those copies represent the originals. There are 109 copies of the works of the historian Herodias, the earliest from 1,400 years before he wrote. Archaeologists have found 1,800 manuscript copies of the works of Homer, allowing 95% confidence in the original text. But for the New Testament, there are currently 5,000 manuscripts with most early copies anywhere from 200 to 300 years later. And some are less than 100 years later, which gives a better than 99% confidence in the contents of the original text. In short, we not only have objective reasons to claim the Bible is reliable, but we cannot call it unreliable without throwing out almost everything else we know in ancient history. If the scriptures don't pass a test for trustworthiness, then no records from that era can The Bible is reliable, it is proven, it is historically accurate, and it is accurate in the transmission. So what? Are you kidding me? You hold in your hands God's word. 
It is reliable, it is trustworthy, it has been given from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, and we put it on a shelf, and we think to ourselves, I'll get to it tomorrow. It must be at the forefront of us as believers. It encourages you. If you find yourself distressed, if you find yourself depressed, if you find yourself in need of some light in your life, it is found in God's word, in God's inspired word. The Bible's words are entirely accurate and authoritative for our faith, but also for our lives, but they must be implemented. And so here Peter says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No scripture contradicts itself. We see here in the text that believers are encouraged and able to recognize and stand firm against false teaching. We have all the tools and guidance that we need to live for Christ at our fingertips. The question is, have you turned on the lights or are you still living in darkness? We're getting ready to take communion in just a a little bit. And my question for you is, have you turned on the lights? As we take communion, you remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed for you on the cross, the symbolic expression that we take part in. I would say when you go back to your seat and think about these things, have you made God's word central in your life? As Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true and He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And today, as we take communion together, I would beg of you, plead of you, to take refuge in the Lord. Maybe that's through acceptance of the gospel, or maybe that's through asking God to make his word become an importance in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your truth and um, It's one of those messages, God, that Peter gives us that we don't know to be true unless we implement it. It seems like the pastor knows what he's talking about, but we can find out if what he's talking about is true if we implement it accordingly. And so, God, my prayer today is uh, that Community Gospel Church would continue to keep your word at the forefront of our worship. That this um, word that you've given to us, the written word, is useful for teaching and training. It's useful for instruction in all areas of life because of the living word, Jesus Christ, who has validated it and your voice that has validated it over and over again. God, as we come to the table this morning, I ask that you would help us to align ourselves with Scripture, that we would um, participate in communion in in regards to remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also... um, the longing uh, to be at home with you and that we would align ourselves to the truths of Scripture, that we would um, plead to you, that we would continue to participate in the glorious text that you have put in our hands. Uh, Lord Jesus, I love you and I thank you for today and for your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.